Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Come to the Dispatch to check out all of our wares, to uh, find out all our find all our stuff, and perhaps one day, God willing, circumstances willing, ball willing. Uh, you can uh, become a paid member of the Dispatch community. So uh, we uh, um, we haven't done economics for a bit, you know. Uh, Scott Lincecum, notwithstanding, and does he really count? He's a trade lawyer, you know. He's not an accountant. I mean, he is. He's a very popular neoliberal shill, and he has brought me around on some nacho related issues, but not necessarily on barbecue related issues. He's really but, good at ranking things. He's a very good ranker. He's 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 a rank Except ranker. He's terrible. He's terrible at ranking things. And uh, and so if you haven't guessed quite yet, um, today's guest is is my colleague from the American Enterprise Institute, um, uh, a fan favorite in a sort of spinal tap select audience is getting more selective kind of way. <laughs> um, uh, none other than the director of economic studies. Is that the actual title? That works. Okay, there you go, um, Michael. How, wh- let's where to, where to begin? Um, we'll do the COVID relief package thing in a second. We'll do minimum wage in a second. Um, but just big picture, existential you, dread. Um, uh, where do you, from zero being the living will envy the dead to ten economic bliss? Uh, where do you see the economy in the next year or so? Um, I think the economy is going to have a good run here. Uh, you know, everything is primed for that to happen. Uh, households are sitting on a lot of money. The pandemic really does seem to be receding at a pretty healthy clip. Uh, we just got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine approved that it began shipping, I think yesterday. And so that's gonna, that's gonna help hasten the end of this uh, household balance sheets are in good shape uh, and uh, the government is continuing to provide support uh, to people uh, that'll put more money in their pockets. And so, you know, I think, uh, I think we're, I think 2021 is going to, it's going to be a good year for economic growth. It's going to be a good year for consumer spending. Uh, it's going to be a good year for the labor market. Uh, I think the question uh, is, uh, are, is the government doing too much? And is that actually going to end up being counterproductive probably in 2022 
Uh, but for but for the the next several months at least, I think we're going to be in um, in good shape. So, do you lean somewhat on the Larry Summers side of things that the that this that the COVID relief one point nine trillion, which is a it's a big number. Uh, do you do you think that there's a danger of actually overheating the economy and and be very careful? We studiously avoid talking about monetary policy on this podcast. So, um, you got to, if I hear the phrase velocity of money from you or too many numbers pretending that they're words, we're going to cut this thing off. Okay. But do you think there's a danger of inflation? I know, but there's all, but they do it. Look, when, 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 when Panuru does that thing with the incantations and the, the desiccated chicken feet, and then you read and he does, drops them over a piece of paper and you look at it and it has velocity of money and then a whole bunch of like italicized letters and numbers that go with it. And it makes me feel unsafe. So anyway, <laughs> uh, you, you do you, you do it however you see fit, but just, you know, people, their eyes glaze over about, about monetary policy and all that kind of stuff. But I understand inflation. So do you think there's a real danger of inflation? I think there's, I think there's really, uh, there's, there's very little question in my mind that we're going to have significant inflationary pressure. Whether or not inflationary pressure leads to actual inflation, I think is uh, is uh, one question. And then whether or not uh, actual inflation becomes problematic inflation is, I think, a second question. Uh, you know, if you want to, this will this will surprise you, but if you want to really get down to the heart of the matter, I think uh, the heart of the matter is that uh, economic demand is going to grow faster than economic supply can keep up. Uh, what are the what are the factors that are pushing up economic demand? One factor is uh, the end of the pandemic. Uh, people are going to be able to go out and spend more money because social distancing guidelines are going to be relaxed. People are going to feel safer about going out. More people are going to be vaccinated. Um, so there is a very good chance that this uh, summer and fall. And maybe even this spring, uh, we're going to see households going on spending sprees. Um, another big factor, households have been saving a lot of money. There is currently about $1.6 trillion of excess savings uh, that households are sitting on right now. And that's going to grow over the next several months as well. So when we really kind of reopen, uh, uh, you know, maybe in the summer, uh, households are going to have over... $2 trillion of excess savings. Uh, they're going to spend some portion of that. That's going to push up demand. Uh, a third factor, Congress passed and President Trump signed into law a $900 billion uh, economic stimulus in December. The policy debate seems to have completely forgotten this, uh, but uh, that is going to provide significant support. $900 billion used to be a lot of money. I mean, that's bigger than President Obama's entire Recovery Act uh, uh, in 2009, uh, helping the economy recover from the Great Recession. So that's going to uh, push up demand. Uh, financial conditions are very easy. That's going to push up demand. And then, of course, if President Biden passes his $1.9 trillion package, which, which, which he, he very likely will, um, that's going to further push up demand. So there's a lot of pressure on on the demand side of the economy. If the supply side of the economy could keep up, uh, then you wouldn't uh, expect to see uh, uh, inflation. 
but the supply side of the economy is not going to be able to keep up. There's just such a huge demand impulse. Uh, in addition, uh, supply is going to be constrained. There are supply chain bottlenecks from the pandemic. Uh, you know, ships are piled up outside the port of Los Angeles, and uh, you know, glass jars are scarce, and so it's hard to get you know jelly or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's an issue. Uh, we just bought some furniture for our house, and uh, uh, you know that you know that pandemic supply chain stuff you know means that you know God only knows when it's going to get delivered. Uh, in addition to supply chain issues, the economy is going to need to be in a process of reallocation, where some industries shrink and some industries expand, some businesses shrink and some expand, some close down, some open, uh, in order to account for uh, changing preferences. Um, and, and changing market uh, demand. And that's going to slow the ability of the economy to, uh, to expand supply um, this year. Uh, you know, finally, I think there are some provisions in the president's, uh, President Biden's stimulus that are going to s- slow the ability of supply to keep up with demand as well. Um, uh, and so you know, you're going to be in an environment where supply growth is constrained and demand growth is exploding. And that is going to create inflationary pressure. We're already seeing this. Uh, uh, the uh, expectations about inflation that are held by market participants have been going up and up and up. We're seeing bond yields on on longer on longer bonds uh, increase as well. Uh, and so I think we're going to see prices rise. The question is, to what level? Um, and if we saw uh, you know, we we're used to having inflation of around 1.5 percent per year. The Fed's inflation target, the Fed's goal for inflation, is two percent per year. If we went up to 2.5 percent or three percent, uh, that would be significantly above the Fed's target. Um, and but that would be a policy victory, I think, because the Fed correctly, I think, wants to have a little more inflation uh, than, uh, than than we're used to. You know, the question is, are we going to have a 1960s-style episode where we really have overheating uh, and where people come to expect more and more uh, rapid uh, inflation? And, and that, I think, is an open question. I think it is enough of a possibility that uh, it would stop me from voting for uh, President Biden's stimulus package. Um, all right, we're going to get to that. I want to put a pin in the the stimulus package question, but first I just want to do a little cleanup on what you said here. One, when you say excess savings, you don't mean that in a sort of pejorative way. You mean more savings than normal, right? Because we've had historically low savings. People are saving during the pandemic. It's not necessarily that like this is like gratuitous savings, right? This is just above historic norms, right? Exactly. Um, And two, and again, without any witchcraft, what is your back of the envelope or elevator explanation for why we haven't had um, more inflation in the last, tw- you know, since the 1990s? It used to be one of these things everyone was like, oh my God, inflation, oh my God, inflation. Um, I was young enough, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the actual like freak out about inflation in the early years of Reagan. Um, and then it just just doesn't we we can spend money like a pimp with a week to live and we don't get inflation anymore. So 
what is, I mean, I know there are different arguments. What is your go-to explanation or explanations for why we haven't had inflation despite a lot of spending in the last 25, 30 years? It's all the alphas and betas and deltas. Uh-oh. Dude, let <laughs> me see way. if you float. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I, this is this is this is the way I would think about it. Um, the economy has uh, an underlying capacity to produce goods and services. It has an underlying capacity to generate income. And uh, the way to think about that is that, you know, imagine everybody who wants to work and could be working has a job. Imagine that all of our uh, capital resources, our factories and, and, and what have you, are fully operational and up and running. Uh, and imagine we are using technology as well as we can. Um, under those conditions, we are uh, producing output and generating income at our kind of maximum sustainable pace. Uh, and uh, now imagine we you know, tell everybody to, you know, work 15 hours a day and, and uh, you know, we uh, try and, you know, run our factories, you know, more aggressively and hotter than, uh, than, than they can sustain over a longer period of time. You know, we can, we can generate more income and we, can, and we can produce more output above that kind of maximum sustainable level. But because it's not sustainable, um, we can only do that for so long. And if you're, if you're, if you're running really hot, uh, for too long, then you uh, you start to see price pressures build. Um, wages, uh, uh, the, the wages that you have to pay to uh, attract new workers and to retain workers end up uh, going up. You end up passing those uh, higher uh, labor costs onto your customers in the form of higher prices. The uh, needs to, the, your needs to kind of upkeep and service and maintain your equipment go up. You have to, you know, pass those uh, higher capital costs onto your onto your customers, and so you start to see price inflation in the economy. Um, a big answer to your question: Why haven't we seen inflation? Is that we have not been uh, running the economy uh, at its maximum sustainable potential. It, you know, we had ten percent unemployment following the Great Recession, uh, and it took years and years and years for the unemployment rate to get down to a healthy level. Uh, it, it took years and years and years for prime-age workers to go back to work in the same numbers that they were uh, prior to the Great Recession. Uh, it really was only in you know, 2018, 2019 that you could credibly argue that the economy uh, had gotten back to full health. Um, and so in an economy that, that isn't using uh, all of its resources uh, as, as, as uh, uh, fully as it could, in an economy where there are still a lot of workers on the sidelines who want to be working but, 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 but aren't, you wouldn't expect to see uh, price inflation. So, but I, I, I mean, maybe I, maybe I missed it, but you haven't said anything about computers and the internet. Is that just sort of implied in your answer or is it not? Because that's... That's the thing I always hear, you know, going back to Alan Greenspan's testimony is that the productivity gains that you get from computers let you do more with less and that gives you more capacity to hold inflation at bay. Or is that is that too yeah, I mean, that's, simplistic? There's 
There, well, there's an element of that. I mean, the, the, the you know the 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 other the, the other big explanation uh, that that I didn't mention is uh, the role of expectations about prices. You know, inflation is a is a very psychological phenomenon, uh, and what happened in the 1960s and 1970s is that people came to expect that prices were going to just keep going up, and that expectation became self fulfilling. Uh, because if you think prices are going to go up and you're a business owner that you raise your own that you raise the prices for what you're selling, you know, if you think that uh, that uh, prices are going to go up and you're a labor union that you negotiate higher wage increases into your two or three year contracts um, and 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 what what was needed was for the Fed to convince people that it was just not going to tolerate inflation. And uh, a, a Paul Volcker did that by causing a massive uh, recession, uh, where we also had unemployment above ten percent. Uh, and he just kept uh, his uh, foot on the neck of the economy until prices went down. And after that happened, uh, people said, "Well, you know, the Fed's pretty serious about inflation, um, uh, and we shouldn't expect." Uh, inflation in the future. We shouldn't expect for prices to just go up and up and up. And and that became a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of psychological element, I mean, that's really important. And, uh, you know, if you're worried we are going to enter into an inflationary regime uh, as a consequence of this weird macroeconomic environment and as a consequence of uh, of uh, President Biden wanting to spend another $1.9 trillion, then what you're actually worried about is that, uh, that people are changing, that they're changing their views on the government's tolerance of inflation. Uh, and and that's, you know, that's what I think people are worried about. When you see Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell, President Biden, you know, almost kind of cheerleading for more inflation. Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 concern is that the the psychology and the expectations around inflation uh, could change, and people start to expect more of it, um, and and that kind of creates a self fulfilling prophecy. There are other factors as well. I mean, you're you're absolutely right uh, about uh, uh, productivity gains. Uh, there's there's good evidence to suggest that. Uh, that uh, Amazon is is reducing price inflation relative to traditional uh, brick and mortar stores. Um, globalization, you know, likely likely plays a part in this too. So there are a whole bunch of factors. But if you ask me for the two big ones, I would say that they are uh, the the kind of way that businesses and markets and households think about uh, inflation and their expectations for inflation um, and just that we're not running the economy at full capacity um, uh, because of the the kind of prolonged weakness following the Great Recession. Okay, and and you left out that they touched the orb, but that's we can don't get into that. Um, so um, this the 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 COVID package. All right, so I mean we touched on some of this already. You're, you're inclined, and what what the way I'm hearing you is is that maybe this thing is a, is a bit too big, but there's stuff that's worth there's worthwhile stuff in it. Um, but first of all, what is your, 
what is your biggest complaint about the the Biden bill and what would you leave in it and what would you take out? And then I have some follow ups. So I think it's I think it's really too big. I mean, I think it's a I think this is a imprudent and irresponsible risk. Um, if you kind of look at the at the macroeconomic need, you know, I think you could justify spending two hundred billion, three hundred billion, four hundred billion dollars, something in that ballpark. Um, and you know, even that is probably not necessary, but you know, but that could be that could be justified. And so this is, you know, this is multiple times that. I mean, this is this is one point nine nine trillion. Um, I also think a lot of what is in the bill is inadvisable. Um, I think it does not make sense to send $400 billion of direct checks to households. It's hard to imagine a worse use of money than that. Uh, the uh, president's plan to um, pay workers $400 a week who are unemployed on top of their state standard uh, unemployment uh, benefits, I think, is a, a very bad idea. It's going to it's going to keep workers on the sidelines, and that's going to you know further restrict the ability of supply to keep up with demand. Also, it's going to be bad for those workers because they're going to be unemployed for longer. Um, the three hundred fifty billion dollars the president wants to send to state and local governments is at least three times more than is needed. Um, and then there's just some kind of you know goofy stuff in there too. Uh, there's you know sixty billion dollars to bail out pension funds. There's fifty billion dollars to um, uh, to expand the generosity of Obamacare uh, subsidies, Affordable Care Act subsidies. Uh, you know, so this stuff is is it has nothing to do with the with the pandemic. Um, so there's there's you know so from a macroeconomic perspective, it's it's way bigger than it should be, and and its bigness actually creates risks for the recovery. Um, from a microeconomic perspective, there's tons of stuff in there that we just shouldn't be spending money on, including some things that will be counterproductive. What, what do I think would make sense to have in there? Um, I think the vaccine spending makes all the sense in the world. I think testing, spending on testing makes all the sense in the world. I think, I think $100 billion for state and local governments is, is generous and would be appropriate, uh, but not, not 350. Uh, safety net uh, spending makes sense to me at this time as well. And if if giving more money to school districts to reopen schools gets schools open faster, I think whatever we can do to get schools open faster really makes makes a lot of sense. It's not really clear to me why they need that money and what they're going to use it on, et cetera, et cetera. And the Congressional Budget Office uh, analyzed it and thought that most of it wouldn't be spent until after uh, after 2021 but even if it just pressures teachers unions to get those schools reopened i think that i think that you know could be could be justified so you know th that's the good part of it but that but that part of it i mean you can do that for 400 billion dollars yeah yeah i mean that was the thing is like i was listening to something on msnbc yesterday one of those shows and one guest said you know how can you expect Biden to be bipartisan when the Republicans have, haven't even offered anything? And Jake Sherman, of all people, was like, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm defending Republicans, but they did, in fact, offer $900 billion. <laughs> and that's like, and, you know, they thought that was a real number. And then, but then, of course, he says, Sherman says something along the lines of, 
Um, of course, what they offered was a non-starter because it was just way, 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 way too small. And I was like, you know, it, it's it the innumeracy. I'm used to innumeracy, right? Um, I'm just it's the scale of the innumeracy now. The 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 sort of the the brain fog of very large numbers is really kind of just driving me crazy these days. Um, yeah, yeah, but like, you know, I'm I haven't studied the 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 this rail thing that Pelosi wants for Silicon Valley, um, but it I'm I'm not a huge infrastructure weak guy, right? But like, it seems to me, given the asymmetry of the labor markets and the infl- and the the high cost of living in places like Silicon Valley, having a good rail system that takes you from places with very high unemployment to places that desperately need more workers sounds like a fine idea for an infrastructure bill. And it seems weird to me that like for five years, everybody, maybe not you, maybe not me, but like every politician has been saying the one thing we can all agree on is we need a big infrastructure bill and no one proposes it. And here you have like, the COVID thing, and it feels like, like, why not take some of that stuff out and create this infrastructure bill and like literally go around to Republican senators and buy bipartisan support from them by saying, you want a tunnel in your district? You want a bridge in your district? You want a road in your district? Let's do this. And you could have a smaller COVID bill, but actually have a much bigger bipartisan infrastructure bill, which just strikes me as big, better politics. But, but Biden, I think... I haven't decided whether Biden does, you know, I, I think he's misreading the the political battles about the stimulus under Obama, but I can't tell if he understands that some of what he's doing isn't in his political interest, um, but he can't help it because he's so answerable to the base of the party or whether he is just being so misled about where his political interest is that he doesn't see the opportunities he has to basically destroy the Republican Party by buying 10 or 15 Republican votes in the Senate, splitting the party in half, making the economy a bipartisan issue, which helps him get reelected, helps Democrats, and, and, and would play such political havoc on the right and take some of the fangs out of the left. But instead, they want to do this, this other thing, and it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. But what do I know? I think you're right that he could get... I think you're right that there are there are bills that he could get to 60 in the Senate on. I think that's totally that's totally right. Moderates, by definition, are for sale, and I don't mean that like they're corrupt. I just mean that they want to play ball. And you know, um, I mean, maybe not Mitt Romney because he's kind of you know he's actually not a moderate. He's just a he's a moderate personality. But like um, like Sue Collins and you know Lisa Murkowski, they're for sale. All these people would like want like highways and bridges and stuff. You can get those guys. Um, it's it's nuts to me. Anyway, I think um, a big part of the story that people aren't focusing on is the dynamic in the house. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think I think what happened here was that the White House wanted to kind of come out with something that was smaller. They got bid up to one point nine trillion by progressives. Kind of thought to themselves, you know, okay, well, you know, we'll start with an opening bid that can that can make. Uh, our our left flank happy, um, expecting to have some sort of compromise, but then I think they got overtaken by events, and I think Pelosi uh, 
realized that um, that if she tried to bring something to the floor that was smaller, she was going to lose, you know, 20 Democrats. And given given how small her margin is in the House, that would have required getting some Republican votes. And I think she does not trust Kevin McCarthy to deliver that. Um, so, you know, I think I think that I mean, a, a lot of the political analysis um, has focused on the dynamic in the Senate and, and rightly so. But I think I think what's happening in the House is actually in, in some ways the bigger the bigger story. Yeah, so I just looked it up. The one point nine trillion is the entire GDP of Italy. You know, we're spending Italy on this one bill. Yeah, a lot of Italy's GDP is under the table. That's true. That's true. That that is fair. Okay, but it's it's <laughs> we're spending we're spending like a hundred and ten percent of Canada, uh, which is one point six trillion, or Russia is one point five trillion. I mean, it's a lot of money. Anyway, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in that price tag, aren't things like the minimum wage, which isn't going to happen? But that's one of these one of these things. When I used to get into big arguments with liberals about, you know, the size of government, they would always measure it just purely in terms of m- various. They play with the the money numbers, and they're like, "Well, the conservative critique is size and scope of government." And technically, a fifteen dollar minimum wage doesn't show up on the budget, but it actually is a massive player. You know, whether you're for it or against it, and it's it's it goes into the books as evidence of the the size and scope and role of government in our economy. And so, anyway, I, I want to start on the the minimum wage thing because it clearly is not going away, in part because it's popular with Republicans too. And I, I'm going to confess that I may be some Republicans with some Republicans it, with, 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 with some Republicans. Oh yes. Fair enough. Uh, I, I, yes. I, I'm trying to steer clear of, of where my passions might take me on some of this stuff, but um, let it loose, man. Let it rip. So, so look, maybe I'm, I, I'm going to confess properly perhaps my privilege. I don't know if it's my white privilege or whatever, but um, like I simply grew up, I had a lot of minimum wage or sub, even sub minimum wage jobs. And if I said to my dad, I can't take a minimum wage job because I can't live on a minimum wage job, he would laugh at me. He used to say when I made slightly above minimum wage and I had a good summer job, He's like, Johnny, you don't understand. You have more disposable income than most of the people I know because <laughs> all of your rent and food and clothes and everything is paid for. You make money and you just get to spend it. Um, and and again, that is, a, that is a kind of privilege that comes from growing up in a world where, A, I had to work, but the money I had to work for was for fun money. It wasn't to, to like, you know, help keep the lights on or anything like that. and. And so part of my expectation about what a minimum wage job is, is that it really should be understood as a starter wage, right? It is not a wage you're supposed to be able to, to support a family on because it's supposed to be the job that you give untrained, unskilled people. It's supposed to be the wage that you pay people uh, while you're doing them the favor of giving them work experience and, and job training and whatnot. And um, 
And maybe that's just for reasons having to do with structural changes in the economy, a dumb way to think about it anymore. And that there are people who actually have to like, you know, to some extent or another, support a family on what amounts to the minimum wage. And if that's the nature of the economy now, then maybe I'm wrong for clinging to this old-fashioned notion that minimum wage is your entry in entry level into the market um, wage, and that you know, um, and the and just the, the the days of like large numbers of teen employment are going away anyway. So where am I wrong? Where am I right on this? Well, I think you're right uh, that the minimum wage is kind of an entry wage. And and the reason I say that is because, you know, if you look at people who get a minimum wage job, very few of them are still earning the minimum wage, you know, nine months or a year later. Right. Um, and so, you know, empirically speaking, you know, that is how businesses use the minimum wage is you hire somebody and then, you know, try them out or get them trained up or whatever. And then, and then, and then you give them a raise. A concern I have with going to a $15 an hour minimum wage is that businesses uh, just won't attempt to hire workers uh, who they worry about their, their, their productivity. And so you won't, you know, not only will it no longer be kind of an entry wage, but it also, uh, uh, you know, there, there won't be that kind of a, a job or, or th- those kinds of, you know, first rung on the ladder jobs, I, th- I think will be a lot a lot more scarce. I mean, like you, I earned uh, the minimum wage. My first W two job was uh, uh, working at a grocery store, and I would, you know, go through the parking lot and collect the carts and clean the bathrooms. And if somebody dropped a you know jar of jam on the floor, I'd go clean that up. Yeah, sorry. Uh, about I that, think. Yeah. <laughs> If somebody if somebody started hurling jars of jam at me (laughs) (laughs) as I dodged them, sometimes they would break. Um, And I think that job paid four and a quarter an hour. Um, uh, And you know, and so you know, if the minimum wage goes up and up and up, grocery stores just aren't going to hire people you know like that like that anymore. And there's some decent evidence that that shows that that happens even at um, uh, modest minimum wage increases. And so, you know, you have this situation where, uh, you know, what, what frustrates me about the minimum wage debate is that nobody wants to acknowledge the trade-off. Um, people who are uh, in favor of minimum wage increases, uh, they want to argue that it's a free lunch, um, that uh, nobody, nobody loses their jobs, there's no reduction in employment, uh, that, you know, people just some people are made better off and some people are kept the same, but nobody's made worse off. Um, and opponents of the minimum wage, you know, really want to argue, uh, you know, that it's just all downside. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I think, I think like all public policy, it creates winners and losers. Some people are made better off. Some people are made worse off and you have a trade-off. You, you, you would boost the incomes of millions of uh, working class and middle class households. At the same time, you would make it a lot harder for the least skilled, least experienced, most vulnerable workers in society to get a job. And depending on how big of an increase, you know, if you if you're talking about going to 15, you are you are reducing you you uh, the number of job opportunities for for 
the least skilled, least experienced, most vulnerable workers in society by over by well over a million jobs. Um, is that trade-off worth it? Uh, you know, I, I think the answer is no. Um, maybe somebody else thinks the answer is yes, but that's really a question of values. Uh, and, and it would be refreshing to debate that rather than, you know, trying to, rather than trying to debate you know whether or not it's a free lunch, or whether or not it's 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 all downside. Uh, you know, you asked about the the low income people um, who are earning the minimum wage, and you know, I think that I think the discussion uh, about the minimum wage would really benefit from separating those issues. Um, most uh, uh, people who earn the minimum wage don't live in low income households; they're secondary earners or even tertiary earners. In, in middle class households, and when you raise the minimum wage, you know millions of people see their incomes go up. The vast majority of of those income gains go to households who aren't in poverty. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is that you know the cause of poverty, the main cause of poverty, is is joblessness. Um, people who work full time year round aren't really in poverty, um, and so when you raise the minimum wage, you're not actually helping. Uh, a lot of poor people because a lot of poor people don't have any don't have any earnings, uh, but there are some who do, uh, and um, and so the question is, you know, what do we do for them? And if your answer to uh, how do we fight poverty among the working poor is the minimum wage, then what you are implicitly arguing is that the burden of making sure that people who work full-time, year-round, aren't in poverty, that burden should rest on their employers. And that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I, would, I would much rather have all of society share uh, in that responsibility. And you can do that through redistributing income. Um, and we have some good programs that, that do that. Uh, and those programs actually encourage employment. Um, and so that seems to me to be a much better solution to the problem. Like EITC of, type stuff, you mean, right? Like the EITC, yeah. exactly. No, I, I think that's right. You know, it's funny. I was listening to a conversation on NPR the other day um, and on Morning Edition. And it was a fairly fair-minded, it was the guy from Brookings was talking about it. Um, used to be at the Journal. Now he runs that center at Brookings. David and, Wessel. Yeah. And I, I think Wessel's a pretty honest guy, and sure. Um, uh, and he was describing the pros and the cons, and yada yada yada. And and he says, you know, and that one group of studies say that it really doesn't have that much of an effect on employment, and um, basically, employers just pass on the costs of this to the consumers. And I think that's, I think that, that is probably true in some places, right? Because one of the things we have is a diverse economy and there's some places where that's possible and there's some places where that's not possible and blah 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 but it occurs to me that at least in some places where you have minimum wage workers working in poor neighborhoods that the consumers you're talking about passing on those costs to are also poor right sure. <laughs> it's like the guys the poor guy who works at mcdonald's in a poor neighborhood is passing mm -hmm. on the the costs of his wage increase to the customers in that community, you know, and the same thing with the mm -hmm. Safeway or whatever. And yeah, yeah. it just seems to me that I think you're right. It's like, you don't, you shouldn't think of the minimum wage as the way you lift people out of poverty um, in terms of, uh, you know, economic redistribution. 
And that's the other thing that always bothered me. And I keep wanting to find hard numbers on this, but I've been told by various people that one of the reasons why the minimum wage, people who know these things, you know, one of the main reasons why the minimum wage is such a core issue for Democrats is that it has an inflationary effect on union contracts that are well above the minimum wage, right? I mean, it's like the 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 understanding is, is that the wage for people who make a, I mean, some, you know, I, I, I don't know, the steam fitters union who make way up, you know, some way above the minimum wage, but their wages are pegged to, or their negotiating positions are pegged to a multiple of the minimum wage. So if you raise the minimum wage from 10 to 15, or whatever it is, um, you're talking about creating the incentive structure to raise the, 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 these much higher salaries by equivalent percentage. And that's, that's a lot, that's a shell game that just almost never gets mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, and you know, you're, you're also right that people who earn minimum wage at Walmart spend a lot of money at Walmart. They spend a lot of money at McDonald's. You know, they spend a lot of money at other businesses that employ uh, minimum wage workers. And so, you know, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're, you know, you're paying them more with your left hand and then with your right hand, you're charging them more, uh, at the, uh, at the cash register when they, when they, when they shop at, at, at your store or at other, at other low wage employers. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the question about the, the, the studies, uh, you know, the, the, the studies we have, um, and I've written, written a few of them myself, uh, you know, they, they are typically of, of modest minimum wage increases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, because that's typically what we have in the United States, right? I mean, the, the, you know, the minimum wage goes from 425 to 475, from 475 to 515, you know, the, kind of that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, it's just important, I think, to underline that going to $15 an hour would more than double the federal minimum wage. The current federal minimum is 725. Going to 15 would more than double it. That is a massive increase. It is not a modest increase. And we don't really have good evidence for what happens when you do that. There are uh, three states, the last time I looked, where the median wage is below 1650, where half of all workers earn less than 1650. There are about 20 states where half of all workers earn less than $18 an hour. And in nearly every state, at least 25% of workers in that state earn 15 or less. Uh, and so you're talking about a policy that would have big impacts everywhere. But in you know, a dozen or two dozen states, this would really have a huge effect on their economies because so many of their workers earn uh, in the ballpark of $15 an hour. Um, and so, you know, in my mind, it's just, it's just inconceivable that we wouldn't see significant reductions in employment uh, as, as a consequence of, of, of 15. You know, at least, you know, half a million jobs, something like that. Um, but I think, I think in all likelihood, you know, well over a million, maybe even over two million uh, uh, fewer jobs, you know, is, uh, is, is the right way to think about it. All right, so let me float. I, I I talked about this on the Dispatch podcast the other day, and um, 
I've wanted to make some calls around it. And so let's just consider this one of the first calls I'm making. Um, it seems to me that the, you know, there's sort of a Joel Kotkiny point about cities versus rurals and, and reds versus blues and all that. But that for places like California, places like Florida, um, places like, uh, you know, New York, um, to a certain extent, or at least the urban centers of these places, um, the prevailing wages are already close to, or going to hit 15 as a minimum anyway. And that is one of the reasons why you see, at least particularly from California and Washington state, um, lots of blue state industries going to red states is uh, because the just the wage inflation and the cost of living is so high. And this seems like you could talk about this in the sense in the context of this is a way for for urban rich states, highly regulated states to even the play, playing field economically to stop economic drain of businesses to uh, lower cost rural or red states. And, and one of the reasons why it occurred to me was that, and I haven't looked it up yet. Um, but, um, someone was telling me that, 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 that Josh Hawley's minimum wage bill would actually do booty, a wage subsidy thing. And so all of a sudden, instead of this being sort of an anti-red state thing, a wage subsidy thing to the states that are below $15 where you get direct federal payments to make up for it would be a net transfer to red states over blue states. And it'd be another one of these examples of blue states sort of paying for red states. Is that a wrong way to look at it? Is anybody actually thinking about it in those kinds of terms um, about how this is kind of a, um, in, in a weird way, a bailout of places like L LA and San Francisco um, because they are already well above those minimum wages anyway, and it's a way to screw the 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 more free market, you know, red states with lower wages. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's an empirical question, and and I and I just don't know that uh, that we really know. I mean, it would be, you know, I think it I think it is interesting to ask, you know, is there kind of cross state migration as a consequence of of minimum of minimum wages? Um, and you know when you see New York go up to go up to fifteen, you know does that actually lead a bunch of businesses to move operations out of New York? Um, I would be skeptical that it would, uh, and the reason I would be skeptical is that a whole lot of the businesses that are affected by this are services businesses. You know, and so if you move your restaurant out of New York, what do you, you know, what do you do? Um, uh, and and a lot of the manufacturing uh, kinds of operations that you could move, um, or even some of the, you know, higher end white collar occupations that you could move, you know, well, their wages are, are well above 15, 15 anyway. Uh, you know, where I think you might see that kind of... Uh, that kind of migration is um, if a city legislates a really high minimum wage, you know, then, you know, so if, if, if Washington DC did that, you know, did, you know, would you see, 
stuff relocate across the Potomac River. Um, uh, but you know, but it's a but it, but ultimately it's an empirical question. Yeah. All right. I I think I got to put it back in the oven because it's still only half baked. All right. So uh, moving forward, um, we. I mean, you're a whippersnapper, but we of our tribe used to talk about how debt and deficit stuff mattered. And um, and I am not taking the position that we shouldn't be borrowing money to deal with something like the pandemic. My point is, is that we shouldn't have been wildly in debt before the pandemic hit because you're supposed to save your money for when you have crises and not be living in permanent you know, debtor status. But it is now, I think, official. Nobody who actually has to face voters of any consequence, right? Sorry to the ones who are actually serious about this, um, actually believes in any of this. Uh, you know, you may, I mean, maybe you know of some young William Proxmire out there who has escaped my attention. Um, but, you know, and again, I think without, with the exception of maybe, you know, Romney and Sass to some extent or whatever, but basically the, the politics of debt and deficits are entirely, I don't like that when you guys get to spend money, but when we get to spend money, it's fine. And again, sort of like our conversation about inflation. So far, we haven't seen any problems with it. How concerned should a rational person be about the fact that, uh, you know, we now owe more money than we produce in a given year. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's definitely something to be concerned about. I mean, the politics of it are actually very interesting. Um, so I agree with the, I agree in general with the kind of more cynical view of this. Um, but it is very interesting that you know, we had this situation um, with the Georgia runoffs, the Georgia Senate runoffs uh, following the November elections. And President Trump really wanted Congress to send another round of $2,000 checks uh, to households. And the Georgia Senate candidates, the Republican candidates, wanted Congress to do the same thing. And Republicans controlled. Uh, Congress, Republicans obviously control the White House, and opposition to deficit spending on those checks uh, was so strong that they didn't do it. They didn't do it knowing that it uh, could cost them control of the Senate. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe if they had actually passed those checks, Republicans would have kept one of those two seats. Um, so, you know, that is an example of Republicans, uh, you know, actually taking a political risk to avoid deficit spending. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that there's information in there about how uh, many people in the party think about this. Um, I think that you're going to see genuine conviction around debt and deficits, you know, held by Pat Toomey and Rob Portman and people like that. Um, 
that's going to be married with uh, with cynicism, right? In uh, political opportunism, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see another kind of Tea Party esque uh, uh, wing of the GOP reassert itself now that now that a Democrat is in the White House. Um, but I think what we saw at the end of the year suggests that it's not it's not all cynical. Um, it's not it's not it's not all political opportunism. Uh, Bless your heart. I mean, look, I I am uh, I'm not sure I agree with the punditry on that. Um, I have to think about it. I think that the but I would say one factor that you're getting at in the in the Georgia thing was that that was an example of how Donald Trump has successful successfully made himself and his issues into wedge issues that divided Republicans and um, his role with the checks thing, his role with the stolen election stuff, um, uh, his screwing. I mean, for all I know, I mean, I, I guess I could ask some senators about this. The reason why a lot of these senators opposed the, the, the checks at the late hour was simply because they were so pissed off at Trump for cutting them off at the knees after, you know, his blowing up, of the deal that his treasury secretary negotiated with Democrats. Right. So it could have been for, it could have been a very Seinfeldian for spite thing rather than some Protestant work ethic, you know, belief in, in fiscal responsibility. Um, but I mean, you just, those are dark days for our nation. Um, what, I mean, like of, of the, of the economic problems that face us, how much do you worry as a practitioner of this witchcraft, uh, how much do you worry about like the negative consequences of being profoundly in debt and getting more in debt by the day? Well, Jonah, it's all about the alphas and the betas and the gammas. Son of a. I mean, I think it's, I think, I think it's a worry there. You know, think about, think about, uh, you know, class. If it's not a worry, why don't we just spend as much as we, I mean, why stop at 1.9 trillion? If it doesn't matter that you're borrowing money, right? What, what is the constraining? What is the limiting principle here that says too much debt is too much. If we've already passed what years ago, we would have called a nightmare scenario. Yeah. So think about two kinds of problems. Think about, uh, you know, a, a kind of problem that is uh, a, you know, bear at your front door uh, that's going to charge through the door and rip you limb from limb. And then think about a problem of termites in the woodwork of your house. Uh, you know, the termites problem kind of erodes the foundations of your house. You know, on on Monday, it's not that much worse than it was on Sunday. On Sunday, it's not that much worse than it was on Saturday. It gets a little bit worse every day. You don't really notice it getting worse, uh, but it's but it's arguably more serious because uh, you know you could just take out a not open the door, take out a gun, and shoot the bear. But you know how do you get those termites out of your out of your out of your house? And one day your house just falls down. Uh, the, the debt and actually to a large extent, the minimum wage, I think are kind of, you know, problems that slowly and quietly, you know, eat away at the, at the, at the foundation of the economy. Um, I think that the evidence suggests that the, uh, uh, extent of, of government borrowing is actually pushing up private sector interest rates. 
Um, and that makes it a little bit harder to buy a house, a little bit harder to buy a car, a little bit harder to get a commercial loan. Um, and that reduces the, the uh, 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 efficiency of the private sector, it reduces private sector incomes, it, it, it reduces the ability of the private sector to, to function. Um, I uh, uh, believe that um, servicing the debt, uh, you know, every year Congress has to write a big check uh, uh, to the people who hold our, our bonds, you know, for, for, for interest payments on those bonds. You know, that I think crowds out a lot of investments um, that, we, that we should be making with, uh, with uh, uh, federal tax dollars. And that has a, a big effect on the private economy. Um, you know, at, at, at some point, uh, there's going to be uh, some question about our ability to pay back all of this. Um, and one way that governments don't pay back the debt they owe is by running up a lot of inflation, uh, because debt is, is uh, uh, nominal. Um, and so if you run up inflation, the value of a dollar declines and the, and the kind of burden of your debt declines. Um, and if bond markets start to get worried about that, then you know, they're going to increase the interest rates they demand to hold our debt, and that's going to make all of these other private sector problems worse. I think the, the, the problem with this discourse is that in, the, uh, in President Obama's first term, Republicans you know, kind of lit their hair on fire and um, you know, uh, publicly you know, predicted a, a, a debt crisis uh, you know, America is going to be like Greece, which uh, uh, had its economy collapse as a result of its debt burden. Um, you know, that is that is a that is it. That is an outcome that could happen, but it is extremely unlikely. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. You know, the United States is the world's the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. The United States is the world's most powerful nation. Um, the global financial system is kind of predicated on. Uh, uh, the certitude that the U.S. government is going to honor its debts, and you know, chipping away at that is extremely complicated. Uh, the U.S. prints its own currency, and so you know, you know, just as a practical matter, how do you ever default if you can just run the printing press and issue the payments you owe? Uh, and so, I think the political right really got this uh, got this issue wrong by doing the, you know, hair on fire, you know, debt crisis um, uh, uh, concerns. But that, but, you know, just because a debt crisis is, 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 is a remote possibility does not mean that there aren't other real problems. Uh, and, uh, and um, uh, you know, those problems, I think, exist and, and, and you know, are a drag on, on, on the economy's performance. And they are only going to grow. You know, and 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 that's the problem. If we if we continue uh, doing what we're doing, they're only the you know those problems are only going to grow in importance. Um, you are you were right, I think, to draw a distinction between the pandemic spending. You know, uh, we've you know, you know set this one point nine trillion dollars aside, which you know I think really is uh, inappropriate uh, up until now. We have spent three and a half, four trillion dollars fighting the pandemic. 
That was all money that was well spent. That money should have been deficit financed. It was completely appropriate. It would have been crazy to raise taxes to try and pay for that spending. Um, and it would have been really inadvisable uh, not to respond aggressively. The problems facing the United States fiscal situation before the pandemic were the gap between insufficient tax revenue and the growing cost of Social Security and healthcare entitlement programs. Once the pandemic is in the rearview mirror, the problems facing the U.S. fiscal situation are exactly the same. All the pandemic did was add more debt. Well, we could handle more debt, uh, provided that the uh, that the debt burden facing the economy is is drifting downward. The problem is the drift, not the level. And we are on an upward trend. We would have been in an upward trend without the pandemic spending. When the pandemic is behind us, we will still be on an upward trend. And we will be on an upward trend, not because of pandemic spending, but instead because of that gap between uh, insufficient tax revenue and the, uh, the, the growth of Social Security and, and healthcare entitlement spending. Um, all right, so we're, we're coming up on the hour mark here. And, um, um, and frankly, things haven't been gloomy enough. No, uh, but uh, uh, I should have mentioned at the top of the show that you have a book out there called The American Dream is Not Dead, right? That was the That's book. correct. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you. Great book. Is it, great book. Is it, it is a great book. It's a very it's useful It's a great book. graduation gift, you know, for people. We Particularly got if you're doing a Zoom graduation. You know, you um, should buy copies for your friends and family and, and uh, all the graduates in your neighborhood. Um, and and, and actually, before I get to my closing question, um, you you are uh, in the sort of taxonomy or um, of economists. You are by training a labor economist, right? Is that right? Right? Or did you just go to the labor thing at Cornell, whatever that, that thing is called? Where both things are true. You are a labor. Oh, economist. the first thing. Yeah, yeah, the first thing is true. Okay, so um, I am. Um, I am now, and have been for quite a while, actually, convinced that, um, remember that Randy Newman song, Short People Got No Reason to Live, or whatever it was called? I have, no, my, I my position is uh, public sector unions have no reason to exist. And, uh -huh. um, and, and it's almost a seesaw thing. As my contempt for public labor unions has increased, my deference and respect for private labor unions has increased. Um, and, you know, my standard line about this is I get why you found, you know, why you would start a coal miners union, you know, in 1890s or 1910 or whatever. Um, where was the great Department of Motor Vehicle ceiling collapse of 1974 that justifies a public sector union, right? Um, and in the, particularly in the context of the, pandemic where lots lots you know there are lots of people who are in unions sanitation workers are in unions uh first responders are in unions doctors nurses uh, maybe not the doctors but the nurses are in unions um uh you know grocery and and food industry people are in unions and they've all you know basically stepped up 
And the one union that uh, hasn't, um, or the one group of unions that haven't, are teachers' unions. And um, uh, as a as a labor economist guy, um, a do you have a soft place in your heart that I can expunge for public sector unions? Um, and B, like what, uh, you know, what is your explanation for why, you know, g- give me a little public choice theory here. Why is it that public sector unions have, particularly teachers unions, have such a stranglehold over public policy, unlike almost any other player in the game today? Yeah, so I, I, I think the teachers unions have been a, a real villain in uh, in in the pandemic and uh, you know my kind of anecdotal observation is that even a lot of you know pro teachers unions you know uh more left-leaning types are really surprised and appalled by by the behavior of of, of many teachers unions uh you know almost comical things like uh you know here in northern virginia where i live um, you know, negotiating, you know, to be first in the line for the vaccines, but then, you know, declaring that they weren't going to go back into the classroom until all the students had been vaccinated, right? Which, you know, a spring of 2022 event or, or 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 whatever it would be. And it's not even clear that all the students should be vaccinated. You know, I mean, like- totally unclear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, I I don't know enough about uh, about politics to know why. Uh, teachers unions have such a uh, you know powerful influence on uh, public policy. I mean, you know, they're big players of the Democratic Party. I think they give a lot of money to Democratic candidates, and so that's you know one one obvious reason. But but I don't really understand understand the politics of it well enough to to know. Um, but I wonder if I wonder if we're not seeing uh, an inflection point in their in their influence. Um, you know, I think, you know, for years, you know, it's, you know, been said on the, you know, political right to the, into the kind of center of the, of the political spectrum that, you know, teachers unions are about teachers and not students and, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think that that just couldn't be uh, more clear in, in, in so many uh, school districts right now. Um, I think frustration by parents is at a boiling point, you know, and I think a lot of parents really would like to take their property tax dollars and do whatever they want with them. Um, and if that means not, you know, sending their kids to the public school that's geographically closest to them, then I think they would like to do that. And, and you know, so I think it'll be interesting to see in, you know, big Democrat cities like Chicago, where this has just been a nightmare, uh, whether or not the politics of this, of this change uh, going forward. I'm not sure. But sort of as an economist, I'm sure you could make the case for why private sector, even if you might disagree with some of the excesses or whatever, for why private sector unions exist, right? I mean, it's collective. You know, it's a, it's, oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The it's collective a, right to your own labor, it can all, you know, the right to your own labor can only be sort of leveraged when you do it as collective bargaining and, and it generated all sorts of reforms to the workplace that benefited everybody and they brought us the 40 day, 40 hour a week and the weekend. And again, I don't want to do sort of their press release for them, but you know, given that there's no intercessor between labor and management, the way there is 
in the public sector union. I just don't what what I don't get what the economic benefit is for the country from public sector unions. I mean, at at the least, and I I have real problems with police and fire department unions because they tend to be really corrupt and they tend to cover up bad things. But at least cops and firemen are dealing with real dangerous situations where which are at least analogous to like dangerous workplace situations in the private sector. I don't get why like treasury workers need to be unionized and why that is something that is not considered the way FDR did consider it inimical to the public interest. But I, you know, I'm a, I'm an old crank on this stuff, I guess. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think that's right. You know, I'm, I'm not a, a big fan of private sector unions. Uh, I think they, I think they reduce employment and reduce employment opportunities. Um, you know, for the simple reason of making labor costs more expensive. Um, but you know, clearly, you can understand how they developed, and, and clearly, they do you know some uh, uh, good things for their members. And they also uh, understand that you need a private sector to have private sector unions. So, they do, yeah. Which is a constraint on their negotiating ambition to some extent. Yeah, right? you, have but, to, you have to divide up the rents, right? So, you know, there, there are windfalls. And the question is, how do you divide that up between management and labor? How do you divide that up between the owners of the company and the workers of the company? Um, and labor unions allow workers to, to grab a share of that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that's a, that's a, that, you know, that, that function used to matter more than it does, which is, Part of why uh, private sector labor union membership has been declining for decades, um, but uh, uh, you know it's it's certainly a, a valuable function. You know the issue with public sector unions, of course, is that the government is on both sides of the negotiating table, right? Um, and uh, you know that that makes a, a lot less sense. Um, all right, so back to the American dream is not dead. Um, last question. Um, I've been hearing it again a bit that, you know, and in, in maybe it was Elizabeth Warren recently, I can't remember, but, you know, how all of the gains of the last pick your time period, 10, 20, 30 years, at some point, it get, the time period has to be stupid because, you know, if you go back 30,000 years, there was no one rich. But of the last 30, 40 years, all of the gains in our prosperity have all gone to the rich or the affluent or the upper class or whatever. And, um, I'm wondering what you think about that. Is it true? Um, and, um, if it's not true, what is the best evidence for why it is not true? Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's not true to the point of being silly. Uh, uh, you know, when, when, when people like Elizabeth Warren, you know, make the, you know, kind of make this, uh, you know, uh, cartoonish argument, um, you know, in 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 the book, uh, uh, the American Dream is not dead, which is of course available on Amazon.com, and no reason not to buy it at this very moment. Uh, I I try and uh, you know make some very you know basic arguments uh, that rebut some of the stuff you hear from Senator Warren, but also from Senator Josh Hawley and uh, and, and from and from populists and nationalists on the political right. You know, and, and one of those is this idea that wages. Have been stagnant for decades, um, and uh, you know I used to do some very 
simple things in the, in, in the book to, to try and look at that. And when you look at uh, the wages of um, uh, the group of workers you can describe as workers, not managers. So uh, in the services sector, literally workers who aren't managers. In the manufacturing sector, you look at production workers. In the construction sector, you look at, at, uh, at uh, construction laborers. Um, you know, this group constitutes about 80% of the workforce. And if you look at their wages over, over the last uh, three decades, um, up until when the pandemic began, what you see is that their wages have gone up after accounting for inflation by about a third. Um, that is uh, a significant increase in their purchasing power. Um, it is, it is uh, less than um, the gains enjoyed by the top 1% for sure. Uh, I don't think we would describe that as spectacular, um, but I think it is uh, just not accurate to describe those gains as as stagnant. That is that is a solid but not spectacular increase um, in uh, in purchasing power. Um, if you look at uh, uh, the um, uh, ga- wage gains for uh, other groups of workers in the bottom half, you see the same thing. Uh, workers um, at the 20th percentile, you know, where where 20% of workers earn less and 80% of workers earn more, saw their wages grow by about a third uh, as well at the 30th percentile by about 30%, at the bottom 10% by about uh, a third as well. And so, and so these, uh, you know, th- these are these are sizable gains. If you look at household income. And not just worker wages. What you see is that post tax and post tax and transfer income increased by forty four percent. You know that is a that is a significant increase in purchasing power. Um, it's less than the top one percent for sure, but it's but it's way more than stagnant. If you look at the bottom twenty percent of workers, their post tax and transfer household income increased by two thirds. Uh, and so what I do in the book is I just kind of try and lay out this case and I, I try to do it in a, in a dispassionate way and just kind of put the facts out there. So, uh, so, so people can, people can, you know, hear some of these statements they hear from Elizabeth Warren and from Josh Hawley and from, and from those types of, uh, uh, populists and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of know how to, know how to understand, uh, know how to understand, uh, those arguments a little bit better. All right. Um, have you been watching, uh, WandaVision? I've not been watching WandaVision. I've been watching Peaky Blinders. I love Peaky Blinders, but like, I, there's not a new season or anything, is there? It's well, like, it's new to me. Huh? Yeah, it's, it's no, you. To you know, I mean, you're just you're on the uh, you're on the blunt handle, not the cutting edge of popular <laughs> culture, my friend. I've um, also been watching uh, Mr. Bear a little bit. I hear that's good. I have not seen it. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's a network show, you know, which, uh, I mean, I've just been watching, you know, basically shows by streaming services yeah. and by HBO, you know, so it's a little, it's a little weird to watch it like a network sitcom again, but, uh, but yeah, I think it is good. Um, I've been watching um, For All Mankind, which I got to say, I like, although Pod didn't like, which kind of surprised me and a few other people didn't like. Um uh, and my daughter is a big M Night Shyamalan fan. Uh, we've been watching The Servant on Apple TV, 
which is super creepy. And I worry, like with all things M. Night Shyamalan, he's really good at building suspense, but only about one in five times does he actually stick the landing. And so <laughs> yeah. like, you, it's sort of like the, it's, it's, like, it's like the problem with Lost, where it was great if they could pull off the explanation for what they bait and switched you into watching for all that time, but they couldn't. So it sucked, yeah. regardless of what Jim Pethacuka says. Um, it became the worst show ever made. Yeah. No, I mean, it was like basically, you stupid suckers, we made you, haha, made you watch. Yeah. I mean, that was how they ended that thing. And, and then they had that ludicrous documentary that aired before the series finale, yeah. where obvious they were all the showrunners and the writers. You know, they were all, and the actors, they were all on message. This is a show about the characters and their journey, not about the plot. Yeah, yeah. Translation, don't get mad at us that you've wasted years of your life. (laughs) Years of your life. Um, You know what I fired up the other night? I fired up Deep Impact. Did you really? I did. Now, Deep Impact is the Tia Leone as an MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. That's the saccharine asteroid movie as opposed to armageddon which is the sort of testosterone one with bruce willis where they're miners in space right so uh, i would say that the i would say the, the the bruce willis movie is both more testosterone and more saccharine yeah yeah yeah, yeah. schmaltzy I, I guess yeah you yeah, know yeah, yeah. you got you got aerosmith and you know Liv tyler hugging the screen and all that kind of stuff yeah um but the thing is in comparison to deep impact um there are many characters in Armageddon that I that didn't make me root for the asteroid, and there were very few in Deep pa- Deep Impact that made me say, you know, that didn't make me say, you know, you got to hear both sides. Maybe the asteroid's got a point here. Uh, <laughs> but do you? I mean, do you like Ben Affleck? No, but I found him kind of ignorable in that. I mean, to be honest, um, I don't know what I, there's so that I just find Ben Affleck any movie he's in, I can't, I can't tolerate it. That's, that's fair. Look, I'm not, you're not going to bait me into defending Ben Affleck, but um, you know who um, would defend Ben Affleck is Jim Bethacoukas. Yes, because Jim Bethacoukas, much like my colleague David French, is just simply in the business of wrong pop culture takes. <laughs> um, it's I think it's Jim kind of, thinks that Ben Affleck was the best Batman, which is which is just a ludicrous view that can that, only be held by someone who thinks that Lost was a great show. That is the kind of statement that would come up in front of a judge when you were trying to have a family member committed. It's like, well, what evidence do you have that he's a danger to himself or others? Well, judge, he thought Ben Affleck was the best Batman. It's like, oh, my hands are tied. That's Take right. him away. He should not be trusted to feed himself. Um, but no, Peaky Blinders is great. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty gratuitously poetic license reading of what the actual Peaky Blinders were about. Yeah. But I, I like it nonetheless. Um, but WandaVision is fantastic. I yeah, would say... It's on, it's on my list. Okay. It is, it is truly fantastic. And um, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I think I like it. I, 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 for geeky reasons, I like it more than The Mandalorian. But I think... It is utterly defensible to say the Mandalorian is better. I just, I, I think, I grew up reading these comics so much that 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 it's just, I think, and and watching these sitcoms, and you you know, it, it is like, 
you got your chocolate and my peanut butter, you got my peanut butter and your chocolate kind of, I mean, it just, it's, it is a great mashup between vast swaths of my pop culture life. And I think it's really, so Mark really Hamill well ruined the Mandalorian for me. Yeah, that wasn't good. The, yeah, the, that, the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, no, it's, it, it was so weird that you did that because like, of course I know what you're talking about, but I had completely blocked it out. I, it was like childhood abuse. I had like taken it. I've forgotten that last minute cameo thing. Um, um, it's sort of like, I'm, you know, it's sort of like midichlorians. You just try to pretend they never said <laughs> or, or Jar Jar Binks, you know, it's just like, what, what are you talking about? That, that, that doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Um, but no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So, um, all right. Well, this is, this is the kind that, you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, this is the kind of thing we spent a lot of time at the AI lunch cafeteria lunchroom talking about at AI back when we were all allowed to be in the office together. Um, and not, I remember that the first hour of all of this. Um, I remember that, but, uh, one day soon, right? I mean, I think it's, I think it's coming soon. Um, and, uh, um, I've been back to the office a bit, but I'm always there basically alone. Um, yeah. And, uh, I went um, in one time and tried to work. I lasted about 45 minutes. Yeah. I mean, when the weather's nice, I still can smoke cigars on the roof and that's great. But, and sometimes when there's too much stuff going on here with the kid and zoom classes and whatnot, I do it for podcast stuff down there. But, um, um, I think to the point you were making earlier, there's a lot of pent up demand from a lot of people to have excuses to get the heck out of their houses and go do stuff. So, um, anyway, to use a technical term. All right, my friend, Michael Strain, thank you so much for joining us. And um, um, the book is The American Dream is Not Dead. People should buy it. Um, maybe even people should read it, but they should certainly buy it. And they should buy it in, in large quantities. That's the important sure. thing. Um, you buy like 10 at a time. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, everybody. Uh, all, right, all right, Michael, sorry, I'm just frumfering here. Uh, we're done with you. Get out. i'm happy to leave (laughs) okay so um it was great to have him on great to get into the weeds on all this stuff and um i'm going to be traveling a bit in march on a family adventure and doing some stuff from the road but uh we're going to try and in the process lock some get some stuff in the can some sort of evergreen ones that we can use just in case if you have ideas for episodes of the remnant that are not directly tied to the events of the day or the news, drop us a line, let us know. You can go to at Jonah remnant on Twitter, or you can email me at uh, Jonah at the dispatch.com. Um, if you have any ideas, or you can go into the comments section on, uh, on the dispatch site and for this podcast and make some suggestions. A couple of people suggested we do the worst president in history conversation, and I've been thinking about that. But basically, it's it's fraught for a couple of reasons. One, I want to do a separate Woodrow Wilson episode, and we would just sort of cannibalize a lot of that. And um, and I don't think anybody has the patience for yet more Trump bashing and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think it's a good idea. I just think we need to let, let, let things breathe a little bit. But if you have other ideas, let me know. Um, 
And uh, other than that, I want to thank Caleb and Nick and um, everybody for putting this thing together. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.